Welcome again to the Lydia McGrew channel, both on YouTube and on Anchor FM and other podcasts. This last week, I was privileged to record with the Classical Theism podcast on the Gospel of John, and I was very pleased uh, to find how excited the host was about the knowledge that um, this content is being sent to audio streaming services. Uh, so I definitely want to get that word out. If you want to watch me talk on video like I'm doing right now, you can definitely do that, but you can get the audio content on uh, the Lydia McGrew podcast, on Anchor FM, and other streaming platforms. So if you were with us last week, you know that my husband Tim McGrew did a reading from William Lindsay Alexander on the methodology of David Friedrich Strauss uh, to show that Strauss was answered even by contemporaries of his own even all that time ago. And therefore, it's not a matter of being somehow unaware of Strauss or having nothing to say to Strauss when uh, contemporary scholars such as myself, John Wynnum, uh, Craig Blomberg, and other scholars like this uh, harmonize the gospel accounts. It's not as though we're just living in the dark ages and don't know anything about Strauss. So I'm going to continue that same, you know, war of the quotations concerning Strauss today. Um, I'm going to start by reading and commenting on a, a quotation from Dale Allison's most recent book on the resurrections. This is a footnote on page 181. I, I think it's a it's footnote 79, and it's just very enlightening, I think, about the the substance of the approach in New Testament scholars to harmonization and the attitude to it. And I think this also casts light on the uh, nervousness even of many evangelical scholars or the reluctance or even the hostility even among some evangelical scholars towards uh, harmonization because they feel in their hearts that maybe they're only doing that because of their theological presuppositions, which is exactly what Allison uh, accuses people of doing. So I just want to, I want you to really hear this quotation from Dale Allison. He's talking about the gospel resurrection stories and harmonizations among the alleged discrepancies there. That some, such as Wenham, and that he cites Easter Enigma by Wenham, O'Connell, parenthesis, who confesses on page 27 to belief in the full inerrancy of the Bible, confesses, and Schnabel are still endeavoring to iron out every discrepancy is dispiriting dispiriting. I'm in inclined to add that facts don't care about your feelings. Uh, <laughs> going back to the quote, they are trying to erase knowledge. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to erase knowledge. Continuing, it is as though Strauss never wrote and as though the successes of redaction criticism in attributing differences between the synoptics to editorial agendas are a mirage. Um, yes, Strauss did write, but he was doing a lousy job. And yeah, pretty much the successes, quote unquote, of reaction criticism and attributing differences, meaning contradictions here, between the synoptics to invention due to editorial agendas 
pretty much are a mirage. In fact, they're a, they're a triumph of fact-free theorizing over even the most basic common sense. So yeah, I'll do that. They're a mirage. But I'm not trying to erase knowledge. I'm trying to recover knowledge. That's what we need to be doing. And I think that's what Wenham is doing. But it, there's more in this footnote. Explanation can lie only, only in adherence to outworn theories of biblical inspiration, theories the deists, the deists, successfully pulverized long ago. Now, speaking as a person who has often been chided for tone, uh, let me just say that I find it astonishing. Dr. Allison finds it dispiriting that people are still harmonizing. I find it astonishing that uh, something of this content and tone appears in a highly regarded scholarly work. This footnote is a combination of sheer sneering, chronological snobbery, outworn theories, and ad hominem, uh, what C.S. Lewis called bulverism, where instead of replying uh, with substance to the person's views, one says, you just say that because you're a man, or in this case, you're an inerrantist, and so forth. Now, the fun thing about that is that I am not an inerrantist, so I guess Dr. Allison's going to have to come up with some other motive to attribute to me if he bothers, but I am absolutely not an inerrantist. One also wonders how the deists could successfully pulverize uh, any theory of biblical inspiration, even the most rigid, which I certainly don't adhere to, uh, some kind of exact dictation theory. What is there in the deists that pulverizes that, uh, except that the deists were opposed to all the miraculous? And if that's what uh, Dr. Allison is going to adopt, one wonders where his alleged openness to the miraculous and the supernatural and the paranormal is going to be then, if we're going to reference the deist as pulverizing theories of inspiration. But even when it comes to people who are inerrantists, it doesn't follow that that is the only explanation for their harmonizing. In fact, if you read Wenham's book, you find that he clearly is harmonizing because he believes that that's reasonable. And in fact, at the end, he, he makes an explicit comment about that, that the harmonistic approach is deeply fruitful. He means historically fruitful. Uh, as far as I can recall, never anywhere in that book does he say, well, I have to do this because of my theological presuppositions. So this is uh, an extremely uh, illuminating footnote. I want to draw attention now to the mention of Strauss. It is as though Strauss never wrote. Now, not only here, but in a number of uh, online interviews, videos, uh, Dr. Allison has said something similar, that Strauss, I believe he used the phrase, rakes them over the coals, referring to the harmonizers of the Gospels, and that he believes that once Strauss wrote his Life of Jesus, that was uh, in 1835, I believe, uh, basically harmonization should have been over. And that's what he's saying here too, that if you go up against Strauss uh, and you go up against the critics who are trying to say that the gospel authors change their uh, work for their editorial, change the history for their editorial agendas, you are trying to erase knowledge. Hmm. So I'm going to turn now to a rather 
lengthy quotation, which I will comment on as I go, by Johannes Ebrard. He published in 1845 a recipe, this was in German, a recipe for um, writing a life of Jesus like David Friedrich Strauss. This is satire, uh, and he shows how ridiculous Strauss's methods of artificial disharmonization would be if applied to other accounts. Um, and it was written in German, I believe, originally, so what we have is a translation. And the translation is slightly archaic in places, so I may be, you know, I can understand the English, but I may be occasionally replacing the, uh, the words with more familiar English words, modern English words. So what Ebert is doing is he's claiming to give advice to, it's, you know, in a satiric way, to people who want to write like Strauss. All right, so, beginning, Ebrard. If the contradictions are really great, and such as to indicate to an unprejudiced person that the events which two of the sources relate are entirely different from those related in to others, you are then either silently to assume the identity of the two accounts, or to seek to render this plausible by urging the points of similarity. In this way, you can show a rich stock of contradictions. So now he's going to try to give an example of how this would work uh, using a, um, a modern person whom he's going to name Caius. Thus, for example, A, meaning source A, says, Caius on a certain occasion met a carriage full of country people who were riding home from a church service. Just at that moment, an old beggar woman passed by and asked them for a present. They were singing merrily at the time, but received none. Caius took out his purse and gave her a few groschen, a few coins. Grateful for his kindness, she kissed his hand and prayed that God would bless him and his family. B, that's source B, says, The wife and children of Caius had gone on a certain occasion to visit an aged aunt. Caius could scarcely wait for their return. Towards evening, he went out on the way to meet them, and the carriage soon appeared. The children, when they saw their father, shouted with joy, and on coming nearer, he perceived that their aged relative herself sat with them. He sprang upon the doorstep of the carriage and, full of joy, kissed her hand. You put on now a conscientious face and discourse in this way. On account of the differences here, the harmonists have attempted to explain the two accounts as referring to different transactions. But who does not see the absurdity of this assumption. Both times we have a Caius who goes out to walk, both times a carriage full of people who both times sing and shout, both times Caius meets with the carriage, both times a family is mentioned, both times an ancient figure, an ancient woman figures in the scene, both times the hand is kissed. That the two narrators wish, therefore, to relate one and the same occurrence admits of no question. It is quite another matter, though, whether they contradict themselves. According to A, it was a carriage full of people who have no particular connection with Caius. According to B, they are his children. According to B, the carriage has a doorstep. It was a coach, therefore. According to A, it appears as if it was a common wagon. According to A, the carriage is returning from a church service. According to B, from a visit. According to A, the woman is a 
beggar and receives from Caius alms, B not only knows nothing of any alms, but makes the beggar woman his aunt. According to A, it is the woman who kisses his hand, and indeed it would seem upon the ground by the side of the wagon. According to B, it is he who kisses her hand and in the carriage itself. Anyone who does not perceive now that these are two secondary and distorted accounts of some legendary event does not know what distorted or legendary means. All right, I mean, this is a great satire. And in a moment, I'll give a couple of examples from Strauss. Everard continues, even if the time in one document is expressly different from that in the other, still you must assume the identity of the two events, and now your contradictions will become as plentiful as you can wish. For example, A says, Caius traveled to Rome in his 30th year and saw St. Peter's Church, and B says, Caius traveled in his 40th year to Erfurt and visited the Great Clock. Here you find the first contradiction in this. According to A, Caius travels to Rome. According to B, to Erfurt. The second is that according to A, he sees St. Peter's Church. According to B, the great clock. Thirdly, A and B contradict themselves in reference to the time. Because in one he is 30 and in the other he is 40. Okay, now, Strauss does this. Strauss does this ludicrous thing that... Um, Ebrard is satirizing, for example, uh, concerning the woman in Luke who anointed Jesus, who's a sinner, and the woman in John who anoints Jesus and is Mary of Bethany. Strauss does that. He assumes it's the same event and then says that they contradict one another. Well, if he paid attention to the differences, then he would realize it's not the same event. Strauss does this with the healing of the nobleman's son uh, early in John and the healing of the centurion's servant, which occurs later in Jesus' ministry in, um, in the synoptics. He assumes the identity, doesn't argue for it. He assumes that, it's, that these are distortions of the same event. Now that is not um, some kind of knockdown argument. I mean, it's, it's terrible method. All right, you, you start out and you're forcing them to be the same event when they appear to be different events. And then you're using the differences, which should include you in, that there are different events to argue that they are contradicting and that one or the other has changed the facts. Um, Michael Lacona does exactly this concerning the um, appearance to uh, the disciples in Galilee and the appearance to the disciples in um Jerusalem after Jesus' death and, and after his resurrection, he uh, argues that they are the same event by emphasizing the similarities. And then he says that either, uh, that either Luke or Matthew, and he, he believes it's Luke, has moved the event, has changed the event to Jerusalem. Well, you know, the, the place is expressly said to be different. Uh, the arguments that he gives about the similarities are by no means uncanny or something as to require them to be the same. This is like straight out of the playbook of Strauss. And I, and I think Dr. Lacona picked it up elsewhere. I think it's become widespread in the discipline. You will see um, gospel critics doing it all the time, but it's a bad method. So you can't just say, oh, it is as if Strauss never wrote. 
No, it's quite unfortunate that Strauss did write and that this ridiculous method has come to be regarded as somehow historically objective. My objection here is that uh, forcing these things to be the same event is bad historical methodology. It's um, artificial disharmonization. My objection is not that it's contrary to some theory of inspiration. All right, so I'm going to continue with Ebrard. This is great. <clears throat> A bold and impudent falsification of the facts you will occasionally find very useful by mere assertion or the unnecessary introduction of some trait unknown to your author, you can make the particulars of the statement appear entirely contradictory to each other. You need have no fear of such a step, as if it might be hazardous, scores of readers will believe you all the sooner for so dashing a maneuver. Thus, for example, it is said, Caius was a faithful father and devoted much time and labor to the education and instruction of his children. And in another passage, it is related that a son of Caius, now grown up, met with a man who had previously been his teacher. You have only now to pervert the first passage so as to make it affirm expressly that Caius gave himself, uh, Caius himself gave all the instruction to his children, which they ever received. And then you can ask, how could this son meet with a former teacher of his when he never had any teacher except for his own father? Now, Strauss definitely does this. He's trying to make a contradiction uh, between John and the synoptics concerning the feeding of the 5,000. And he literally says this. This is Strauss now. While according to Matthew, Jesus retires from Nazareth and probably at all events from some part of Galilee to the opposite side of the sea where he engages in the multiplication of the loaves, according to John, he sets out from Jerusalem, making it sound like there's some contradiction. John, in fact, is very clearly in agreement with the synoptics. Uh, John 6 says, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of, the sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great cloud of, crowd of people followed him. You can't cross to the other side, to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee from Jerusalem. I mean, there's, a, there, there's no, not, a, not a body of water where Jerusalem is on one side and <coughs> the um, alleged place of the feeding of the 5,000 is on the other side. Strauss must be referring to the fact that in the previous chapter in John, Jesus is in Jerusalem, but that doesn't contradict the synoptics. John says sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. But that's just sometime after this. He's obviously back in Galilee if he's crossing from one part of the Sea of Galilee to the other, just as he is in these uh, synoptics. So this is what Ebrard calls a bold and impudent falsification of the facts. He's literally saying that according to John, Jesus sets out apparently directly from Jerusalem to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, rather than setting out from some part of Galilee to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, is in the synoptics. It's, it's just crazy. Um, and let me just add here that Strauss sets up a truly ridiculous demand for coordinating John with the synoptics. This makes a principle out of a bad argument from silence. This is Strauss. Okay, so he's talking about trying to harmonize John with the synoptics. If the result of such harmonization is a reconciliation of the two accounts, the journeys to the feasts in John 
must form the panels between which the materials of the synoptical writers must be inserted. For this incorporation to be done with any certainty, and I think by certainty he just means confidence, two things would be essential. First, a notice of the departure of Jesus from Galilee by the first three evangelists every time that the fourth speaks of a residence in Jerusalem. So he's saying in order to harmonize these uh, with any confidence, any strong confidence, the synoptics would have to say Jesus left Galilee on every occasion when John uh, tells about his being in Jerusalem for a feast. And secondly, on the part of John, an intimation, if not a narration, between his accounts of the various feasts of the Galilean occurrences represented by the synoptical writers in it as an uninterrupted chain. So in other words, every time that uh, there is a series of events in the synoptics in Galilee, John needs to tell explicitly that he left Jerusalem. Um, and, and John needs to imply explicitly that these Galilean occurrences occurred. Notice, too, that when John does imply that by saying sometime after this Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, um, Strauss actually erases it by manufacturing a fake contradiction by an impudent falsification of, of John's narrative. So, you know, he won't take yes for an answer even when John does exactly what he's demanding. But of course, there's no need for these two things. He's just making that up off the top of his head and then arguing from the uh, absence of such explicit references to uh, Galilee and to Jerusalem in the synoptics and in John uh, that they are unharmonizable and that they are contradictory. That's just very poor methodology. So. Once again, are we who harmonize rejecting Strauss only because of an outworn theory of inspiration which was debunked long ago by the deists? No, no, and also no. So we see that uh, Strauss's immediate contemporaries were debunking his views, in fact, only 10 years later. I'm Lydia McGrew. Thanks for coming to the Lydia McGrew channel where we're making common sense rigorous.